0: You are listening. Dunn commentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies: uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the in the United States. Uh, If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. uh, That will meet all your office and party needs. Go to MySweetLifeCookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to MySweetLifeCookies.com. Check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. Matt Lewis is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast. His work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, GQ, The Washington Post, The Week, Roll Call, Politico, and more. He previously served as senior contributor for The Daily Caller, and before that, as a columnist for AOL's Politics Daily. Lewis dissects the day's issues in conversation with other thinkers, authors, and newsmakers on his podcast, Matt Lewis and the News, and co-hosts The DMZ Show with liberal pundit Bill Scher. He's a political commentator for CNN, has appeared on C-SPAN, News NewsHour, ABC's Nightline, and others. He's contributed to radio outlets, including NPR and the BBC. He's the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Went from the Party of Reagan to the Party of Trump, and The Quotable Rogue, The Ideals of Sarah Palin in Her Own Words. Matt Lewis, welcome to Uncommentary.
1: Hey, Marty. Good to be here.
0: So, um, you are in, is it Alexandria, Virginia? Where, where is that in relation to, like, the rest of the real world?
1: Oh, so yeah. I mean, we're like uh, 15 minutes from Washington D.C., so this is definitely a suburb. But technically, I am uh, well. I'm inside the beltway, but I'm but I'm in the Commonwealth of Virginia.
0: Okay, so uh, so you want to? You're an insider and an outsider at the same time. Is that what you're trying to convince us of?
1: Well, I really am in the sense that, like, I'm from a really rural area. My dad was a prison guard for about 30 years. Wow. So, um, my mom lives in Pennsylvania and vote and. Didn't just vote for Trump, but drove people to the polls for Trump. Wow, so, that's awesome! Um, yeah, and now I live right outside of D.C., so
0: that's cool. So um, I became aware of you uh, from your book "Too Dumb to Fail," which I guess has been out for maybe about five years. Is that about right?
1: Uh, it came out in January of 2016.
0: Okay, so three years, a little over three years. But
1: I, you know, but I spent years sort of writing it. So.
0: It adds up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Here's my book that I published over the last 12 years. Um, so talk about, talk. first of all, for those uh, listeners who don't know you and they don't know your book, uh, you're a conservative. Uh, I think your website now kind of identifies you as center right, something like that. There's at least one spot on there that does. Um, you wrote a book based on your experience with conservatism and being in the Republican Party um, that kind of contrasts uh, the Republican Party of my childhood, which is sur- uh, which is centered on Reagan, up through uh, Trump's campaign, I guess. So, talk a little bit about your book, why you wrote it, and some of the conclusions you came to.
1: Sure, I mean, like I think now my ideas are kind of old hat, and um, but people. You had them like, first, though. Yeah, I think that's. I need credit for that because <laughs> when when my book. When my book came out, I was one of the, maybe the first guy who wrote a book basically. I mean, so so there are people who are liberals who write books criticizing conservatives. Correct. That happens a lot. But I think my book was like at the vanguard of being someone who is a conservative, who was uh, who was critiquing the mo- the state of modern conservatism, which I view as anti intellectual dumbed down and and more populist mm-hmm. than than is my taste. And I grew up. Like you with Ronald Reagan, so he, I, some of these people uh, who write books about this hate Reagan, right. and they didn't like Reagan when he was president. Like I loved Reagan; right. he was one of my heroes. <laughs> and um, you know, it's like I knew I, I knew Ronald Reagan, Mr. Trump, you know, Ronald Reagan. It's yeah. like, um, so that was really what the book is. I um, I was seeing that the Republican Party and the conservative movement was headed in a way that I thought was more vulgar, um, less Less intellectual, le- in, in many ways, less philosophically conservative. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I started noticing this actually around 2010. I was working in a place called Politics Daily, which was AOL, and uh, the site wow. is now defunct. But when, um, you know, and I used to, i love Sarah Palin when John McCain picked her, but oh, I, right. I saw that she kind of started to, to become radicalized. And then there were people like, um, like Christine O'Donnell. And I started seeing uh, people playing identity politics on the right, kind of white identity politics, and playing the victim card, which to me, bugged me. And that's when I started paying attention to it. And then it ultimately culminated, of course, my book comes out in January, I warned the Republican Party not to go in this direction. And they promptly elect Donald Trump
0: president. (laughs) Uh, what do you mean by when you say uh, you watched Sarah Palin get radicalized? What What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think, I think a lot of people think that Sarah Palin was like a horrible person and a horrible politician. And um, I have a little more nuanced take on that. Mm. I think you got to remember Sarah Palin had like an 88 percent approval rating as governor of Alaska. She was um, she kind of took on the the. Uh, the establishment there. Um, she, when she was picked, she gave a great speech. She gave a great speech at the convention. The, she her, her, held her speech, own.
0: yeah, her speech when she was like introduced to the country as the VP candidate was excellent.
1: Yeah, she held her own in a, in a debate against Joe Biden. Now, it, as it turns out, I think she was clearly not ready for prime time, yeah. and she wasn't thoroughly vetted. But I think what happened to Palin is she was thrown in the deep end. Um, She couldn't swim. But then rather than go back to Alaska, serve out her time as governor and bone up on the issues and 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 take things seriously, I think that the experience of being thrown in the deep end and being attacked by the media radicalized her. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to become a better person or rise to the occasion, learn from it, she played the victim. Um, literally, and not not just in, from a political stance. I think she saw herself as a victim. She tried to cash in on like reality shows and sort of took the easy way out. Right. And um, so I think that that Sarah Palin, um, she you know it's easy to now look at her as, as and, and mock her, but I think it's it's a little more complicated than that.
0: Why do you um? <clears throat> what's the driving impetus? Do you think uh, in what you consider the uh, the move toward a more anti-intellectual GOP. Uh, I mean, the criticisms obviously are the GOP's anti-science, it's anti-this, anti-that. Um, and part of that, I guess, is is so many conservatives embrace uh, kind of a literal interpretation of scripture where they believe in a six-day creation, uh, and they're very skeptical about any kind of evolutionary thought or something like that. So you do have a lot of religious conservatives that are viewed by other people as anti-intellectual because of some of the religious beliefs and how they cross over or don't cross over uh, into the broader culture. But that wasn't really what you were talking about in your book when you were concerned about an anti-intellectual move uh, from the from the GOP. Go into that a little bit. What you saw from say the time of Reagan, who's regularly lampooned as not being very smart, when in actuality he was he was really pretty smart and very studied uh, in his time leading up to the governorship and his time leading up to the presidency, even if you admit that he wasn't right about everything, he wasn't ignorant about a lot of stuff. He was, he was very studied, uh, to now where there does seem to be, I think you even mentioned people running for office who've not only never held office, they just don't seem to know anything. I think that was in reference, maybe the tea party time, uh, Talk about a little bit about what you see in that, the, the concerns that it is long term for the GOP if they're peopled by people who don't know as much as they need to know.
1: Well, I mean, like, l- just look at what works. I mean, look, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a graduate of a, of a humble little college called Shepherd College in West Virginia. And I was like a very mediocre speaker. So I don't want to, like, posture myself as an intellectual
0: Dude, that's um, why I have you on here because you're like the intellectual from you know Harvard, whatever you know.
1: It's yeah. the Harvard on the Potomac, as you call, call it. But I try to, but but I try to learn it and I try to grow and I try to to interview smart guests on my podcast. Um, and we have a humble little audience, but look at what's really getting ratings, right? It's it's Sean Hannity. Yeah. It's like Duck Dynasty. It's Tommy Lauren. It's Diamond. Look look at this week as, as we're taping this. I don't want to. Break the fourth wall, but um, the conservative political action conference is is about to take place, mm-hmm. and you've got like Diamond and Silk speaking there, right? And then you've got people like Candace Owens and Tomi Lauren. I mean, um, <laughs> actually, yeah. my my friend Jamie Weinstein put together this like mock satirical agenda. And one of them was uh, from Edmund Burke to Charlie Kirk. And <laughs> that actually is indicative of the problem is, is that we've gone from Edmund Burke to Charlie Kirk. And I think that says it all. Interestingly, I think Reagan inadvertently helped expedite this process because because as you as you noted, Reagan was um, was very intelligent and, and incredibly wide read. Um, I, I don't think he was an intellectual, but he was a very for for a guy who had a C average at Eureka College, he was very knowledgeable. As I document in my book, um people were stunned yeah. by what he knew about economics and philosophy and and how well read he was. But Reagan liked to be as George W Bush might put it, mis- underestimated. Mm-hmm. And so he played this kind of folksy, and I document this in the book. He played this kind of "Quote amiable dunce." He liked to portray himself as Joe Sixpack, regular guy, in some ways, and it really worked for him politically. But I do think that it that it sent the message that you don't really need to be that learned; that you can just kind of wing it.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And then it, you you know smash cut a couple years later to Rush Limbaugh, and I think it's just a look. As much as I love Reagan, and I and I think he was. In so many ways, a force for good. I think I beat the Soviet Union. He won the Cold War. Right. But I do think one of the things he he did he did kind of perpetuate is the idea that about pointy headed elect intellectuals not not knowing anything.
0: So now we have um, <clears throat> President Trump, who. Uh, who, who seems to get marks from the GOP for being smarter than he, he could possibly be. And certainly he marks himself as being smarter than any man could possibly be uh, because he, I mean, I've seen video, and obviously these are uh, cuts, as you note, but it's every context you could possibly imagine where he says, I know more about whatever it is, the news, the radio, science, you know, aerodynamics uh, than anybody. Uh, So he obviously has a very high estimation of his own intellect, uh, and those around him seem to, like, pump up this idea that he's this, you know, very smart and intelligent businessman, very successful and all these things. But the average person watching him seems to think, no, he's just, you know, he's of average intelligence, and so we've got a president now who uh, doesn't seem to have the intellectual capacity that former presidents have have had uh, for good or for ill – But now we have an election coming up in 2020. Um, The Democrats, you would think, with Trump's approval rating being fairly low, uh, would be like salivating, and they'd put everybody out front that could possibly uh, beat him. And five of their candidates in the same vote seem to be approving uh, the legalization, or at the very least, the protection of infanticide um do the democrats do they know who makes up the electorate in the united states
1: well at first i would say just just to go back real quick um my bigger problem with trump isn't his iq or anything like that it's it's his lack of character which i think is much more concerning but to your point This is like a golden opportunity for Democrats. You would think they would want to nominate someone who um, who contrasted with Trump, somebody who might be able to win over people who people like me who 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 aren't big fans of Trump. Mm -hmm. So a contrast of Trump might be somebody who's competent, somebody who's experienced, someone who's decent, a family person. Um, And and they're, they're clearly not doing that. They want a Trump of their own they're 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 mimicking kind of the worst attributes of Trump. And and if Michael Avenatti hadn't fallen apart, um, you know, maybe he would have been the perfect like anti-Trump to run. But the interesting thing is that if you read my book Too Dumb to Fail, what I do is I document all of these these perverse incentives and this like game theory called the tragedy of the commons. And um and it basically explained why as Hayek said, the worst get to the top. My book explained why it is. It's called too dumb to fail because the, the dumber you were the high, the better you did in the polls, right? Oh, wow. There are these perverse incentives. And I think the Democrats now it was delayed, but they're experiencing the same phenomena that I, that I wrote about on the Republican party. It's now hitting them. They have the same dynamic, these perverse incentives. They're too dumb to fail. Uh, So basically what Democrats have to do is they have to lose the general election in order to win the primary. It's almost a catch-22. And so they're taking these radical positions, right? Eighty percent of Americans are against late-term abortions, and yet 100 percent of Democratic uh, presidential candidates candidates are for it um go down the list right reparations green new deal um you know you name it they're staking out the most radical unpopular territory and that's why i think amazingly donald trump has a decent shot to be reelected and the last point i'll make is it's not about the popular vote right it's about the electoral college right. so democrats should be thinking how do i win michigan how do i win pennsylvania how do i win florida and it's, it's almost as if they're doing exactly the opposite of that with these policies,
0: especially since Trump is already polling behind in some of those states that he won earlier. Uh, and the he,
1: midterms didn't go well for and him. The either.
0: midterms, did, yeah, that's uh, that's being very generous. The midterms did not go well <laughs> <laughs> for him. Um, so is there? Uh, so here, here's the thing that I hear from uh, people that I know that are conservatives that uh, are like you and like myself who. Uh, aren't particular Trump fans and wish there was a better alternative? Um, even uh, a guy like Michael Ware, who is a Democrat, is like, "What is it with the party that keeps them? Are the are the parties headed? Are, is each party headed toward its own extreme? Is the is the Democratic Party just chugging along toward the left as far as they can go, as quick as they can get there, uh, giving uh, AOC the microphone as often as possible?" To let her kind of be the standard bearer, and then on the on the re- Republican side, you've got this really populist nationalist. Uh, the alt right's not being emphasized quite as much as it was there for a while, thank the Lord. But um, you still have this really, really, you know, tariffs and weird trade ideas and stuff like that. Uh, the middle is getting bigger, but nobody's representing the middle. What what would it take to have somebody, a uh, John Kasich, stand up and say, "Hey, I'd I'd like to have a shot at this." Um, I'm I'm not a nut. What what can y'all do for me?
1: It's a real it's a real conundrum, and I think part of the problem is that um, politics, especially the American system, and especially at this moment in time, it's not about the numbers of people. It's about the intensity, and so there may be a lot of people in the middle, but by virtue of their being in the middle, they're sort of lukewarm.
0: Yeah, that's a good um, point.
1: The people who are the people who have the intensity, the people who go out knocking on doors, the people who troll you on Twitter, the people who turn out to vote if it's snowing um,
0: are who, who drive people to the polling stations,
1: are ideologues, yeah. you know. And so I think that 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 ex, that intensity explains uh, explains a lot.
0: That's uh, that's a fair point. Um, if people in the middle are like me and I probably would be in center right, kind of like you are, then it's like, okay, when all these people are through shooting at each other and backstabbing each other and calling each other names and acting like fools, we'll see who's left standing and I'll either vote for one of them or I'll write in Matt Lewis. Um, you know, it's just, so I, that's a point well taken. It's hard. It's hard for the mass, uh, to get excited about the people that don't excite them. And since there's, no excitement in the middle, it's hard for a candidate, I guess, to rise up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll take you, you know, 60% right here and I'll carry the standard for y'all when we're not really saying we're, we would support that person anyway. That's a good point.
1: I think it, I think that, you know, in our day and age now, Politics is really a cult of personality in many ways. And I think you almost have to be a rock star to be elected president. If you look at our recent presidents, Mm. Reagan was a rock star, literally a movie star. Uh, Bush, George H.W. Bush was just Reagan's third term. Yeah. Then you have Bill Clinton, rock star. George W. Bush, kind of a rock star, had a a swagger, definitely charismatic. Barack Obama, biggest celebrity in the world. Yeah. And, and now Donald Trump, a reality star. And so I think that what it would take is someone it, it, to have a, a, a more of a moderate person get elected. Number one, I think you would need someone who has that, that charisma and celebrity status, uh, sort of a superstar to carry the banner. They would also have to be tough. There's this line from Bill Clinton that I think is true. Sad, but true. And Clinton said it's better to be strong and wrong than right and weak. Hmm. I think right now, if you look at Donald Trump, there's this need for a, a, a machismo out there. And I think that one of the problems with people like Jeff Flake and John Kasich is that they kind of seem wimpy. And so if you want to get away with a moderate political philosophy, you have to balance that with a tough, exciting persona. I think that's the only way to do it. And this is an admission that we live in a very superficial society. Right. Um, but don't hate the player, hate the game.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, so as we're recording, uh, the president is on the other side of the world, and he is uh, in Vietnam meeting with the, uh, the dear leader of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, and um, I just want to get your take on that. Um, that's the the specifics of that whole thing don't come up very much. Um, Tom Nichols tweets about it all the time, but as far as like normal conversation, I think the average person doesn't really know what to make of uh, this. Well, is it a relationship? Is it a uh, is it working between countries? Um, is, is there any hope that Kim Jong Un is actually, you know, having a human moment and uh, is thinking about something other than which of his family members he needs to blow up with an anti-aircraft gun this week or poison? Um, what's your take on that whole thing?
1: Well, I want, I, I hope that it works out. I mean, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for the president and America here, but I, I'm skeptical. I think it's kind of naive for trump to do this um in the case of reagan there was a lot of groundwork um reagan even walked away from the table i remember that yeah
0: Yeah.
1: um and even still there were people who who were saying that reagan you know the old man's gonna have his his lunch taken from him or whatever Mm -hmm. he's gonna be outmaneuvered by the younger gorbachev so i don't want to I don't, I'm not rooting against the president. I'm just skeptical. I mean, this guy, this this North Korean dictator, is as you said, a murderer. He murdered an American, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, um, and I also think the president's susceptible to flattery and praise, and he likes the the showmanship of this. And so, I, I guess my concern is that um, if nothing else, we are we are legitimizing. And elevating a rogue tenhorn dictator and and putting him on the same stage and st- with the stature of the president of the United States, so in general, I, I'm I'm very skeptical of this of this move.
0: Yeah, this is um, I, I don't know that I've seen anyone compare this directly to uh, Reagan meeting with Gorbachev, but um, to equate that seems to me it would be kind of silly. Um, you know, North Korea is an isolated state; it's small uh, the, the USSR could have blown up the world by itself several times over, even if we never launched a rocket. So it's not like there was a, um, an equanimity of, of power or influence, uh, in any way, shape or form. So, uh, I would, I would think that that kind of a comparison would fall flat. Um, but I just haven't seen, you know, the reports after the last summit, uh, do not come in favor of, uh, what President Trump announced—it uh, seems like some of the things that were supposedly destroyed weren't really destroyed. Some of the things were going to be uh, scaled back, possibly weren't scaled back. Uh, and I'm not sure what this summit—what uh, what what is, what is there to gain from this if if there's if there's no game plan going in, and it's uh, let's have dinner and let's talk and let's continue to be friends. Um, you know, we're not going to reduce our nuclear arsenal to make. Uh, unhappy and what what is he going to do other than say something that then he again doesn't do i don't I don't know where the upside is in this this meeting
1: yeah and then look i mean there are libertarians who believe that that it's just good in general for people to talk and that um forget all the stuff about legitimizing him and, and and elevating him and and just just good for people to talk um and maybe and maybe something will come out of it. They'll build a relationship. Maybe there's an argument for that. You know, libertarians believe that. I think Barack Obama talked about meeting with Iran without preconditions, things like that. but um by and large, i uh, you know I, I I can't I don't trust Kim and I don't really I don't trust Trump as a. I mean, he's he's going to stay up late at night watching the Michael Cohen hearings right. instead of like preparing for the
0: summit. It's just
1: and the other thing too is it almost seems. Now look, I'm sure there's Mike Pompeo and others are are hopefully doing some sort of diplomatic behind the scenes stuff, and right. and and I've heard there's a method to the madness, meeting in in places like where uh, Kim and others from North Korea could see. Look! Look at Vietnam now, right? There's some economic development here. You could do this too. You you could replicate this. So maybe there's some method to the madness that I'm not privy to. Maybe something good will come. I I, I but it's almost like the triumph of hope over experience right yeah, now.
0: Yeah, I'm talking to Matt Lewis about his book "Too uh, Too Dumb to Fail" and all things conservative. And we'll be right back after this. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget. The third way is by using my Amazon shop. So that's amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. amazon.com slash shop slash Marty marty duran most of the books from the authors that i have interviewed are there as well as some that i just recommend for your reading pleasure Uh, you get the same low amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support uncommentary so i hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because i couldn't do it without you now back to this episode of uncommentary um all right matt let me ask you this question Um, is conservatism in the United States now Trumpism? I asked David French this question, and he doesn't think so. Um, But I'm having a really hard time seeing a a separate line um, of conservatism, especially from the the GOP right now, that's separate from Trumpism. I mean, they basically said, we don't want any candidate to run in the primaries against him. He's our guy. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a default or a de facto acceptance of, his way of doing politics as their own is it not is am i overstating that or understating is french right am i right or I, you right
1: i think it's a semantics game right i mean you could argue that look conservatism is a, is a intellectual philosophical tradition that goes back to edmund burke and mm-hmm. aristotle and that it doesn't matter if anyone buys into it or not it exists because it is it is an idea and it can't be squashed yeah. right um but I think that practically speaking, the number of people who adhere to that once proud philosophy could have a meeting in a in a phone booth.
0: Yeah.
1: Me, you and David French, probably. Right. <laughs> um, so for so look, I think we could quibble about it from a semantic standpoint. But like practically speaking, uh, there isn't uh, I don't think that there is an electorate. F- I, I don't think that there is an audience or an electorate or a constituency. I don't think there's a constituency for a Buckleyite conservatism, really. Maybe enough to support a podcast or a magazine, not enough to elect a president. I was surprised by that, but but it's more Trumpism, it's more nationalism, it's more white identity politics than it is, uh, I mean, look at, as we're taping this, there were only 13 Republicans in the House who voted uh, against the the in my opinion executive overreach on this so-called emergency declaration right for the border wall funding
0: yeah Mm
1: -hmm. stood up for institutions who stood up for the rule of law who stood up for the separation of powers i mean that tells you all it is again you could have our meeting almost in a phone booth so um now the other thing too is if trump is reelected, and as we discussed i i think it's well within the realm of possibility i mean he could be in jail, he could be impeached, or he could be uh, sitting in the White House. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's definitely, it's a, like a jump ball, right? Um, if Trump is an eight, if Trump is a two-term president who's been been president, you know, who's president for eight years, that's going to be like a generation of Americans who age, who view the Republican Party and the conservative movement, that the brand of it is Donald Trump. And and I'm not just talking about the people who are forever turned off to Republican to the Republican Party because it's Trump. I'm talking about the young Republicans who buy into it. Yeah. I mean, look at this guy, Matt Gates, or whatever his name is down in Florida. Yeah, a yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: horrible person who is replicating all of the worst qualities of Donald Trump. I mean, he, Trump is having these disciples now who admire him, see that he's a winner. And that he gets away with all of the things he does and they're trying to replicate it. So that is going to have a lasting impact. It, you can't. Un- There's certain things you can't unsee. Um, you, you, well, the genie's out, right? Yeah. You I'm can't not put the egg back
0: in the shell. Yeah. You,
1: you know, all those cliches, right. <laughs> hmm.
0: Um, so, you're talking about, uh, we're talking about Trumpism being equated with conservatism. Um, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, uh, Barack Obama was elected, you know, pretty strong vote totals and Electoral College totals and all those things. And it seemed to me that his, his approach to politics was he was, he was liberal who had try, who tried at times uh, to pass himself off more toward the center. Um, And it worked for him. It worked for his party uh, to a degree. Now, he faced his own midterm backlash uh, at one point at least. Um, But more of my friends who are in the center think more highly of Obama than they do of Trump. But it seems like all the capital, all the potential that Obama uh, left for uh, the Democrats to use, um, they've pretty much ignored um Trump is not going to come toward the center at all. Um what's uh, I, there's a question in my mind that I'm that I can't that I can't get out in, in a way that makes any sense to anybody except me. Um are we going to have in in the rest of my life are we going to have a a candidate who is both sensible on the life in the womb and life of people who've already been born who is sensible on economic issues who is sensible on taxation who is sensible on trade and I realize that I'm not even defining sensible but as a centrist that kind of defines it um, it are we going to be able to uh, are we going to be able to be the America that we were say 25 years ago
1: I mean this is a real th- this is a real question that i grapple with and i don't know the answer um i think that there are, there are sort of two theories one theory is that that this is cyclical and and if you look throughout history i mean crazy stuff has happened right um, <laughs> that's true andrew jackson and then america fixes itself mm. and um you know fdr some of the stuff he did um, four term elected four terms tries to pack the court uh, does a Japanese internment um, and Nixon right I mean Nixon and Watergate and then you know six years later you get Reagan and I mean we' are in 1979 right so so there's an argument that says like America always eventually does the right thing after what's the churchill quote after uh, every other option has been <laughs> right <laughs> has been explored um so that's the option i'm hoping for i think there's also an argument that says no well this is more of a linear problem and and that there are things that have changed like the world is dynamic and if you look at some of the technological changes like can't 24 seven cable news that I think exacerbates our divisions and our problems and Twitter, which I think exacerbates our divisions and our problems and like the, the breakdown of, of morals, which I think Donald Trump is kind of a result of that, of, uh, um, about the breakdown in our, our community, uh, our social capital and our values. Mm-hmm. And, and that, um, and that, so he is like the logical progression. Um, it's almost like an idiocracy race to the bottom. Right. So I, I think you can make arguments for both for both ways. Um, I hope America's resilient. And I guess you can imagine a scenario where you end up with like a Nikki Haley or a Ben Sasse one day and that there's a backlash. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. But I, I just I don't know how it's going to end.
0: Is there a is there a center left Democrat?
1: I don't think so. I I think that um, I think that right now what we've seen is that the parties have really polarized and they're basically two tribes. I think the Republican Party is basically a party about white identity politics. And um, I think the Democratic party is a party about minority identity politics uh and and feminists who want abortion on demand um neither of those options are options that I am down with or that I can that I can support right and sadly that's kind of the state of play today i do not see uh just as i'm just as i'm pessimistic about the republican party and and wrote about all the the trends that I that I find concerning. Like there's nothing in the Democratic Party that gives me any signs of hope.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh I'd love to be proven wrong, but all the just the incentives are perverse. Yeah. If you are if you are a rational actor and um you, you know you don't want to be a hero. You don't want to swim against the tide, but you want to do what's easy. You're going to behave rationally and do what gets you elected in the Democratic Party. That will lead you to take all sorts of stances that you and I could never, in good conscience, embrace. Right, and that's kind of where we are.
0: Um, <clears throat> now you're a pundit. I heard you say uh, on your own podcast, which is Matt Lewis in the news, or Matt Lewis and the news.
1: Yeah, yeah it's a it's a playoff of Huey Lewis okay. and the News. I'm a <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs>
0: So I heard you say that you're uh, doing even like training or seminars or something like that conference, something uh, for pundits. So I want to ask you uh, how much of the division that we kind of see in America right now is you guys fault?
1: Well, I think I said earlier, don't hate the player, hate the game. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I think that as i said i think that that 24 7 cable news coverage um and twitter and i'll throw in there the proliferation of blogs and websites Mm -hmm. uh has certainly contributed without a doubt not only to the election of donald trump but to the divisions in america uh exacerbating really we like what the media and i'll just say i'm going to call us the media the media whether that's TV, um, or, or Twitter or whatever that, that we, uh, it's like the whole, if it bleeds, it leads thing. We like to exacerbate problems and shootings. People think there are more shootings now than there ever were. They're not, um, maybe, maybe more school shootings, certainly. Um, but, but we like to talk about all the bad things that are happening, um, because we care about ratings and clicks and controversy and being provocative and getting buzz and getting drudge links. And uh, and I think overall that's really bad for America. I will say that there is one media that I think is certainly a net positive and I am very excited about, and that is podcasting.
0: Where preach, can, brother, preach. I got my hands up.
1: People can have a long-form conversation, talk to someone for 45 minutes, have a discussion, a debate. And I think that's really healthy.
0: My guest today, speaking of podcasts, on Uncommentary has been Matt Lewis, author, news analyst, pundit, and columnist, uh, Daily Beast, correct? Mm hmm. Awesome. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, on commentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to, uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost to 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150 respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me/uncommentarypod. that's paypal.me/uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month, swag level three bucks a month, you can do that at patreon patreon.com/uncommentary that's patreon.com/uncommentary. Now if you'd like to advertise and I can always use advertisers, then email me, Marty Duran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duren. follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod, and tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.